Okay, we're going to look at the last of the seven churches today, uh, the church in Laodicea. It's probably the letter that most of us are most familiar with. I'll give you just a little preview of where Jesus is going with this right in the heart of the letter. Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. And uh, yeah, that's just a, a hint of, of, of where this is going this morning. Uh, this begins in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 4. Jesus writing to the angel, to the pastor of the church in Laodicea. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say that I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. But it's such beautiful imagery. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, yes, um, we've been looking at this specific Roman province of Asia where there are these seven uh, prominent Roman cities. And within one generation, the church has already been birthed in all of these cities. And it's established. And... uh, There's a church in this city called Laodicea. Uh, Let me start with just the city of Laodicea at this time. Laodicea is not a large metropolis like Ephesus or Rome. Uh, It's also not a city with with a rich history, Uh, but it's hugely significant to the empire. Laodicea, of all the seven uh, cities in this province of Asia, and you need to think... uh, these cities like they're, they're Philadelphia and Boston and Washington, D.C. and New York. Uh, they're, they're cities uh, to that kind of equivalence. Uh, Laodicea is the richest of these seven cities and the newest. So you put that together and you have the definition of new money. Uh, this is a city that epitomizes new money. Uh, First, uh, they're rich because of their location. Uh, They are on a major trade route. In fact, all the prosperous cities in the ancient world are on the major trade routes. Uh, The trade route put you in the game. Uh, Your local business, because of the trade routes, can now become regional and then national and sometimes even global. Laodicea capitalized on two local industries, 
uh, first using the medicinal properties from a local rock that could heal eye salve or that could heal eye infections. Okay, they, they discovered this from one of their local rocks um, uh, that it had these properties. They then took this rock and they ground it down into a powder. And then with this powder, uh, they produced this eye salve that soon be- was in huge demand throughout the whole Roman Empire. It had such healing properties to the eyes. Well, then you can just imagine in time how one of the most prominent medical schools evolved out of this, and Laodicea quickly became the eye care capital of the world. Also, Laodicea and some of the surrounding area, uh, it's home to these wonderful animals. Uh, Those are uh, actually sheep. Now, just look at them. Look, Look closely at their wool because it had this glossy sheen to it. Laodicea then used this wool to make these garments called trimata, which were prized throughout the empire. I mean, you were something if you had a trimata black wool coat. Um, And so Laodicea, uh, they are the producers of this and therefore became even one of the largest textile producers in the whole Roman Empire. And then out of this, uh, stores... Uh, and shopping districts, uh, famous shopping districts, maybe the equivalent of like Gucci and Versace and Ralph Lauren, uh, all form within Laodicea. So now with all this economic prosperity, uh, that attracts the big banks, and Laodicea then became the banking capital of Asia Minor. Now remember currency in the ancient world. They don't have cash. Uh, Their currency is gold, primarily gold. So you add all of this up, and Laodicea is a highly prosperous, wealthy city, city, uh, not a large city, um, and yet it boasts probably two of the most beautiful temples in the whole Roman Empire and the largest stadium in Asia Minor. The big house is in Laodicea. Uh, and, and then also it's, it's home to some of the largest, most luxurious outdoor shopping districts. And so with all of this wealth came what? Pride. Self-sufficiency. Uh, so much so that that earthquake that I referred to last night, if you, you were here, uh, this earthquake of AD 17, uh, while it didn't do the same kind of destruction to Laodicea that it did to Sardis, uh, it was still significant. And yet when Rome offered its help, help, Laodicea said, we're fine, we got this. Then in AD 60, another earthquake hit this whole region, and this time Laodicea got the brunt of it. And this, this earthquake wiped out almost the entire city. In fact, the ancient historian Tacitus, who's writing at this time, said that Rome offered major funding to restore Laodicea. And Laodicea said to Rome, no, thank you. We got this. They're proud. Now, one of the problems that Laodicea had was horrible drinking water. Um, It's high in sulfur, which makes that water putrid to drink, 
and it literally made people nauseous. In fact, here are some of the remains of Laodicea's water tower, and you can still see the pipes uh, there, and uh, the pipes are actually the orange, but all that white crust within it, that's all calcification. Uh, And so, again, just an example of, of how horrible their water was. Now listen to Jesus' words to this church. He says, I know your deeds. Again, he knows. And deeds here is, is, is our works. It's, it's, it's not what saves us. Christ saves us. But yet when he saves us, uh, his salvation gets pushed into our lives and pushed out of our lives. It's, it's something that we walk out and our walk matters so much so that John, who's writing this, also wrote 1 John. He says, if anyone claims to be in Christ, he or she must walk as Jesus walked. Like, and that's what Jesus is saying. Like, I, I know your deeds. I know how you walk. I know how you're walking out this faith. And this is the only letter where Jesus has absolutely nothing good to say to this church. He says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, but because you are lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say that I'm rich, that I've acquired wealth, but you do not realize uh, that you are poor, wretched, pitiful, blind, and naked. Jesus is uh, taking something that is in their everyday world, the, the, the water that they drink, and he's using this as, as powerful imagery to say to them, I just need to spit you out of my mouth. And what that word in the Greek literally means, it means to vomit. What Jesus is saying to this church is, you cause me to vomit, That's strong language. In fact, he's like, you make me nauseous. Now, this this really has punch when when you consider the two sister cities that are located just a few miles from Laodicea. One is Colossae, uh, where the letter of Colossians is written. The other is Heropolis. Uh, Heropolis is the the spa capital of the entire Roman Empire. Uh, The reason it becomes the spa capital, and remember, the baths, which uh, are essentially spas. Uh, This is an institution to the Romans. The Romans do this every single day. In fact, it's so important to them. This is even one of the things that they allow the slaves to do every single day. It's, It's an institution to them. And Heropolis became the place, the spa capital of, of, of the Roman Empire uh, because of the natural hot water that uh, emerged from just the geology of this place. Uh, all these hot springs uh, come right out of the earth. Uh, the water itself is at perfect spa temperature. It's 95 degrees. And so Heropolis then built all these spa uh, 
bath complexes, making use of this wonderful spring water. And Romans came from all over the world. This became a destination place for them. That's Hierapolis. Colossae, the other city, just a few miles from Laodicea. It's located right at the base of snow-covered Mount Cadmus. And it was blessed uh, to have this fresh, cold snow melt mountain water. Uh, I've tasted this water. It's just unbelievably refreshing. So I want you to hear what Jesus is, is saying to this church when he's making use of this imagery, when he says you're neither hot nor cold. He's saying you're neither like the hot springs of Hierapolis, nor are you cold like the water of Colossae. And see, for the longest time, I I always thought Jesus was talking about uh, their spiritual temperature, that he's scolding them for their lukewarmness, for not being spiritually hot or spiritually on fire. But I don't think that is what Jesus is addressing here. What he's addressing is their lack of usefulness. The ice-cold mountain water of Colossae is, is useful for drinking. The hot spring water of Heropolis is useful for healing and spa treatment. But you, Laodicea, like your water, you're neither hot nor cold. You're useless. This would be such a devastating thing to hear. I mean, as, a, as an athlete, if a coach ever said to me, like, you're useless, you're just useless. <laughs> or if the elders of, of, of my church uh, said to me, like, Rod, you're, just, you're useless to us. Uh, If my family or friends just said these words, you're useless to me. Like, that's devastating. And here Jesus says to this church, you're of no use to me. You have so much. You have so much to offer me in the world, yet you're a waste. And he even takes it one step further. He says, you make me sick. Now, why such harsh words? I mean, from Jesus. Well, Jesus tells them why. In verse 17, he says, you say about yourselves, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. I want to make, make it very clear that there is nothing Nothing inherently wrong with riches and wealth. But it's the only topic that causes Jesus to say, take heed, beware, be on your guard. I mean, we know the dangers of sex. We know the dangers of gluttony, addictive substances. We know the dangers of laziness, anger, jealousy, and gossip. But for some reason, I don't think we always see the dangers of wealth and money, which is why Jesus says, beware, be on guard, take heed. Again, to be clear, it's, it's not that money in and of itself is evil. In fact, the creation of, of wealth uh, 
is, is something that fits within the creation mandate. When, when, when God made Adam and Eve and made them in God's image, and the first thing it says about God is, in the beginning, God created, and then he makes people like him, which means we're made to create things and to build things, organize things. It's, it's all the way in which we are like God. We've been made like God to cause creation to flourish. But we still need to hear the words of Jesus. When it comes to money, beware, take heed. Which means money and wealth are a dangerous thing. Because there's an enormous power, I think, that's attached to money that we're so often blind to. You know, in Jesus' letter to uh, the church in Pergamum and also to Philadelphia, he says, uh, to those who belong to me, who are all in with me, I'm going to give them a new name. And when Christ gives us a new name, this is more than just another label. I mean, think about all the times in the Bible when God or Jesus uh, renames someone. And, And the reason why God and Jesus renamed them is because their hearts, their lives have been completely changed, so much so that the only way we can talk about this change is words like being born again, uh, new creation, new birth. I mean, the change is so utterly radical and complete. And this is the new name. The new name is the new person. It's the new you. And yet in our world, it's so easy to let money be the thing that names us. And I think the reason for this is because wealth and money promise us so much. They promise to give us a name, a big name, which is why our lives can be consumed with getting it and spending it and saving it because through it, we think that we get a name, that we have a self, a new self. That's why Jesus over and over has to say, beware, take heed. Because here in the long run is what happens when we let wealth name us. Because we're going to lose it. We can't take it with us. And as our money fades, we're just going to fade with it. This is the danger of money. That's why in Psalm chapter 1, the psalmist, it, and, and this is the first psalm because it's first importance. It says the wicked are like chaff, and the chaff is the light part of the grain, uh, which would, when they uh, would just throw the grain and the chaff up in the air, uh, they would throw it up in the wind, and the wind would just blow the chaff away. Uh, and the Bible takes this analogy to say that's what the wicked are like. Um, they're lightweights. There's nothing to them. There's no substance to them. Uh, There's no weightiness to them. They just blow away. That's people who get a name from money. They're lightweights. There's no substance. And Jesus' caution with money even goes deeper. Not only are are we blind to its power, but but money does something to us. It, it, It puffs us up. It 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 causes us to think that we're more than we actually are, that we're better than we actually are, that we have more control and and security uh, than we actually have. 
And this is exactly Laodicea's problem. Jesus says, you say things like, we don't need a thing. <laughs> really? That's pride talking. That's the pride of self-sufficiency. And see, this is why wealth and pride go hand in hand. They, they, they fuel each other. And here's what I found so often uh, when we come to this topic, uh, the rich in the room start to squirm and the rest of us sit back and feel good that Jesus isn't talking to me. Uh, but if you're rich right now, you can sit back and relax uh, because I'm going to address middle-class prosperity. It's dangerous. I think it's one of the most dangerous forms of prosperity there is. Because what middle-class prosperity means, it means I'm not rich enough to know the meaninglessness of riches, and I'm not poor enough to know true poverty. And here's what I, I've seen. Middle-class prosperity produces this smug, self-sufficient, condescending attitude in people. An attitude that says, I'm pretty good. My life is pretty good. And I don't really need anyone or... or, or anything, uh, and everything that I have is, I have it because I worked hard for it, I earned it, and therefore I deserve it. That's middle class. And this middle class attitude spills right into our relationship with God. I'm a good Christian. My life is good. I'm blessed. And everything that I have with God is because I worked for it. I earned it. I deserve it and I don't really need anything. I got this. That's middle-class spirituality. And that's Laodicea. We don't need a thing. And we need to see the dangerous thing it is that this kind of attitude to God makes him vomit, makes him sick. And oftentimes, this is what we call maturity. This is not maturity to God. Maturity to us in our rugged, individualized world is becoming a self-sufficient person. It's being able to look at our parents, our friends, our world, and say, I don't need a thing. And we call this reaching adulthood. But maturity, according to God, is not moving away from need. It's moving towards need. Because with God, think about it. All you need is need. All we can offer God is need. I mean, it's the song of that, that great hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in these hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Rotten. I to the waters fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You know, you know the ones who can sing this song? Are the poor. You see, the poor innately know that life is difficult, that people are weak, fragile, and vulnerable, that we live in this dark, vulnerable, broken world, and it's from inside that poverty that God looks wonderful. Christ is just beautiful. 
And their hearts can just so easily say, God, I, I need you. I'm desperate for you. Is this you today? Does God just look wonderful? Does Christ look just stunningly beautiful? And when you come to him, you come to him empty-handed or are you always coming to him hands full? God doesn't do hands full. See, when we come to God with our hands full, uh, whether it be, God, here's my strength, or here are my accomplishments, here's my goodness, here's my righteousness, we are coming to God proud. We are not giving God our need. We're not coming to him hungry and thirsty, and God doesn't do pride. Think about Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the humble and the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. They're the ones who see God. And this is why Jesus is so harsh here. He has to be harsh to wake them up to their blindness because riches have caused them to lose sight of who they really are. And this is why Jesus says in verse Uh, 17, you say that you are rich and that you don't need anything, that you have acquired wealth. But let me tell you, let me say who you are. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. If we want to be healed of our pride and self-sufficiency, we have to know two things. First, we have to know personally our true poverty. Do you know this about yourself? What Jesus says, apart from him, we are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He is not saying these words to a proud city. (laughs) He's saying these words to a proud church, to Christians. Do you know this about yourself? That apart from the grace of God in your life, that's what we are. Because if we don't know this in our heart, then we're blind. Blind to what? Blind to who we are. And what causes this blindness? Money, success, achievements, our talents. Even our own righteousness, our ministry can blind us to this. It blinds us to our true condition. Apart from God and his grace, we are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. We have to recognize that first. Second of all, we have to recognize that Jesus is what we need. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me Gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. (laughs) Jesus is clearly speaking to the very things that made Laodicea proud. Large reserves of gold in their banks, their black garment industry, and their eye salve. And he's saying, repent. Stop getting a name from these things and come to me and I will give you your name. 
And here Jesus tells them what he offers. First of all, it's gold refined by the fire. Uh, Gold refined by the fire is often how the Bible speaks of a changed heart because in that world, for, for gold to become pure, it has to go through the fire. And the fire is, a, a, is an image of suffering, of testing. Isaiah 48.10 says, See, I have refined you, Israel, though not as silver, but I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Or Job says, He knows the way that I take. When he tested me, I'll come forth as gold. And see, the Bible places a high premium on suffering. And here's what suffering does. It erodes all the scaffolding that we work so hard to to, to just put up this front, this image, this exterior that we show off to the world saying this is who we are, but God sees through all of that. He sees to our heart. And suffering is what destroys all that scaffolding. It exposes us. And it's how we get in touch with our poverty. That's why someone as great as Paul could say to a church that wanted him to boast about all these external things, Paul finally gives in. He says, you want me to boast? Okay, I'll boast. I'll boast about my suffering, about my weakness, my vulnerabilities, because I have found church that where Christ is most present in my life and his power when it works so actively in my life, it's in those places when I'm weak. Jesus not only offers us gold, that we become gold refined by the fire, but also white garments and garments, clothes to us, our, our, our fashion, their style, clothes in their world uh, are their status. Uh, but clothes in the Bible oftentimes depict our standing before God. And left to our own, even the best of us, even the best of us, stand before him like filthy rags. I don't know if you know the story in Zechariah chapter 3 of the high priest Joshua who stands before the Lord. And to stand before the Lord is technical language. It's what the holiest man of the year, the high priest, on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, went into the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, representing the people. And the high priest, for this, he washed and washed and bathed seven times. And if you read Zechariah 3, Joshua, when he goes and he stands before Uh, God in the holiest place on the holiest day as the holiest person, what God saw was a man who was covered in filth and excrement. Because that's what God sees when he sees the most holy person. It's what his holy eyes beheld. Isaiah says even our most righteous acts are but filthy garments to him. But here's the glory of the gospel. It's that God clothes us. He removes all of our shame, all of our filth. And that's what Jesus offers. And finally, Jesus offers this, this eye salve so we can see, so our eyes can be opened. 
And it's both a crushing and an exalting thing to see. This is why we sometimes say ignorance is bliss. It's, it's humbling, humiliating to see ourselves as we truly are. We can't hide behind our wealth or our status or our achievements, or our lifestyle of goodness and righteousness or our titles. So many just can't go to that place. They refuse to admit who they are. They hide. They spend their whole lives hiding. But we'll never know the deep, deep love of God until we see ourselves. And see what a loving thing it is for God to shoot straight with us, to tell us who we really are, even if it's harsh. Because this humbles us. It, 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 it keeps us from looking down on, on anyone because whoever we encounter in this world, we're no better. We're just as wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked apart from the grace of God. And that frees us up to exalt others and to consider others as better than ourselves. And second, to know the love of God when we feel proud is one thing. But when we stand before the God of the universe, empty-handed, nothing in our hands are bring. And in that place, to know how deep and wide is the love of God in Jesus Christ. That he knows us to the core of our being, and yet he loves us to the skies. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's why God's love is called gospel. It's the best reality there is. God loves us not because we're so good, because he's so good. Finally, verse 20. Jesus says, church, here I am. I'm here. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me. And so think about this. In, in light of all that Laodicea has become, Christ is still saying, I'm knocking and I want to come in and I want to eat with you. And this is almost pathetic imagery because Jesus is not talking to the city of Laodicea. He's talking to a church and think about where he is. He's on the outside asking to be let in. Why is he on the outside? They don't need him. And this is where so many churches are right now. This is why Jesus is not present. This is where Christians, so many of them, are right now. <laughs> they're going through the emotions. They're doing their thing. They're gathering on Sundays. But Jesus isn't there. There's no need. There's no hunger. There's no thirst. And yeah, here he is. Knocking. Christian, I want to come in. Open the door. I want to feast with you. Feast is about relationship. 
He wants to be with us. He wants to know us. He wants to walk with us. And all we need to do is ask him, God, open my eyes to my need, to all my false saviors, to all my false gods and idols, things that promise to give me a name. I repent. And then we just sing a simple song that I was taught as a kid. Into my heart. Into my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Paul's not too proud to pray that prayer. Listen to his prayer to the Ephesian church. For this reason, I fall on my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will go down into God's love and keep you strong and you may have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, and then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. And to that prayer we say, amen.